Hello, this is Alison welcoming you to the 2230th edition of the Enfield Talking newspaper, the week beginning 6th of February 2023. Your readers this week are Jean and Alison with John on the controls. The editor was ourselves and the production and distribution team is ourselves. The local news stories that we will be reading from come from the Enfield Dispatch and the Enfield Society News and the Enfield and Haringey Independent and are their copyright. The event's information has been collected, collated by us from other sources. The lead story this week will be about supermarket pharmacies that are set to shut. Before the news, we have one or two special items and notices. First, the sunrise and sunset times for the week beginning 6th of February 2023 are 7.27am and 17.04pm. We also have one other special notice, and this is from an organisation called Enfield Vision. We are a group of visually impaired people determined to improve the environment and to reduce the everyday problems of blind and partially sighted people. We are registered with the Charity Commission as an organisation with the specific aim of promoting the well-being of visually impaired people living in Enfield. We hold a drop-in morning on the third Thursday in each month from 10am to 1pm at Park Avenue Resource Centre, Bush Hill Park, Enfield. Here are the dates for the next few months. Thursday, 16th of February, Thursday, 16th of March, and Thursday, 20th of April. Do get in touch with us to share your own news and special announcements. We do love to hear from you. If you have any comments about the Enfield Talking newspaper, please phone Diane de Jersey on 07899854582. She is your listener's representative and will be pleased to help you. I'll give you the number one more time. 07899854582. Several North London Sainsbury's supermarkets are facing closure. The pharmacy group said it would close 237 branches across the UK in the course of the year in response to the, in quotes, changing market conditions, end quote. This includes branches in Hendon, Newbark, Barnet, Kenton, Stanmore, and Winchmore Hill. Kevin Birch, chief executive officer of Lloyd's Pharmacy, said, quote, This decision has not been an easy one, and we understand that our patients and customers may have questions about how the change will affect them. We would like to thank them for their continued support and assure them that we are committed to providing a smooth transition over the coming months. 
I am very grateful to all our colleagues for their dedication to our patients, customers, and communities, end quote. A Sainsbury's spokesman said, Lord's Pharmacy is withdrawn Lord's Pharmacy is withdrawing pharmacy services from our stores over the coming months. We will work with them to ensure customers are clear on how they can access alternative pharmacy provision to meet their needs. Next, an article article from the Enfield Dispatch about new blue plaques that have been placed in Enfield. Blue plaques highlighting the history of local business premises have been unveiled. The Enfield Society has funded the creation of ten stickers which resemble the familiar blue plaques erected by English Heritage on buildings of historic interest around London for display in the windows of businesses in Lancaster Road. They tell a variety of stories about the history of particular premises, including a former pub run by the same family for nearly a century and a greengrocer who killed her husband. The plaques were created by Simon Warren, who runs an organisation called Here Before Us and has created 215 such plaques around the country to celebrate the forgotten lives of long-gone local residents. Alison Yates, who helped coordinate the installations along Lancaster Road, told the dispatch, We had this project to try to cheer up the road, and we are trying to do something to increase the footfall. Last year, colourful flower pots and decorations were hung from items of street furniture in Lancaster Road, after being created by gift shop owner Kerry Bullen. But later, they mysteriously disappeared. Alison said, We want people to use their local shops a bit more, and this was an idea to do something that could not be removed. Simon said the project was also about trying to keep people in the high street instead of going to out-of-town shopping centres. One of the plaques celebrates the history of a former pub, the Hollybush, that was closed around a decade ago and is now a small supermarket. It was run by the Chandler family between 1871 and the mid-1950s and the great-granddaughter of former publican Benjamin Chandler, Philippa Gardner, told the dispatch, It is part of our family history and we still talk about it. Benjamin was quite a character. He used to take people to the races in his charabang. He was very well known around here because of how kind he was and his good deeds for local people. Not all of the black blue plaques tell such heartwarming stories, however. The one that now adorns Kerry's shop, Boho Flow, recounts the tale of greengrocer Mary Ann Dearman who killed her alcoholic husband in 1907 and was convicted of manslaughter, but was only imprisoned for three days because of extenuating circumstances. I'm reading from the Enfield Independent, uh, Enfield and Herringay Independent. 
up about Aston Martin celebrates its 110th anniversary. Born on the track and inspired by its founder's passion for racing, Aston Martin is celebrating 110 years of motor manufacturing in 2023, a business that started in a small workshop in Henniker Mews, London, has grown into one of the most renowned marks across the world. In photographs released to mark the anniversary, Aston Martin has brought together two of the most iconic and innovative models from its 110-year bloodline, the record-breaking 1923 racer Razor Blade (laughs) and the upcoming Aston Martin Valkyrie Hypercar. One of the earliest cars to be specifically designed with aerodynamics in mind and propelled by an Aston Martin Grand Prix specification engine, the trailblazing razor blade took numerous class records at Brooklands in 1923, a year on from Aston Martin's Grand Prix debut with TT1, the car nicknamed Green P. A century later, Aston Martin continues to innovate with its thrilling high-performance models, bringing modern Formula One engineering to the road through its era-defining Aston Martin Valkyrie. The brand's historic 110th anniversary is to be celebrated through the launch of a new, strictly limited, exclusive Aston Martin model, to be unveiled later this year. The milestone will also take center stage of this year's British Grand Prix at Silverstone, the Goodwood Festival of Speed, Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance, and the other major events across Aston Martin's key regions as part of the global marketing campaign entitled Intensity, 110 Years in the Making. The 110th anniversary is one of several notable landmarks for Aston Martin in 19... I beg your pardon, in 2023, with the year also marking 75 years of the DB bloodline, 60 years of the iconic DB5 model, and 20 years of Aston Martin's Graydon headquarters, the purpose-built factory facility serving as a center of excellence for world-class sports car design and engineering. Now I bring you a tour of the Dugdale Center, as written in the Enfield Society News. The Dugdale Arts Center at the junction of Cecil Road with London Road in Enfield Town reopened to the public on Friday the 16th of December, after extensive alterations to the interior. The theatre is unchanged and will continue to be used for a variety of shows. The remainder of the ground floor has been redesigned following the closure of the museum on the first floor and the relocation of Enfield Local Studies Library and Archive. The new entrance is in Cecil Road and leads directly to a small information and shop area. The cafe has been moved and is now fully open in the evenings as well as during the day. 
The adjacent tables and chairs can be used by customers in the cafe as well as by visitors to the displays, participants in workshops and audiences at performances, as was demonstrated at the opening night. There is a new centrally located temporary exhibition area. Its interesting and varied first presentation, which is open until April 2023, tells stories of Enfield, mainly through panels with text, photographs, sketches and maps. There are recordings of older residents' memories of Enfield's past, views of pre-Raphaelite stained glass windows at Christchurch Southgate and finds excavated by members of Enfield Archaeological Society at Elsing Palace, together with displays by various community groups and local organisations. Behind is a very small, permanent museum with artefacts illustrating aspects of Enfield's history. The centre was formally opened by the Mayor of Enfield, Councillor Doris Giage, on the evening of Thursday, 15th of December. Among the invited guests was the Enfield Beast, who was introduced to the Mayor. The Dugdale Centre now seems designed to attract younger and more diverse audiences, particularly in the evenings. The new museum has a greatly reduced display of information and artefacts relating to Enfield and its history, although it is possible that future temporary exhibitions may display some more items from the permanent collection. The location of the museum and the temporary exhibition area should ensure that they are seen by visitors to the performances and the cafe. And this is from the Enfield Dispatches as well, entitled Fighting for a Fairer World. Bill Linton and the subtitle... Bill Linton looks ahead to Fair Trade Fortnight following the revival of Enfield's Fair Trade Group. Most people believe in fairness, and many also look outwards towards a world that could be a whole lot fairer than it is. One opportunity to put these ideas into practice locally comes in the form of the Fair Trade Movement, which has been growing steadily in the UK since 2000 since it started in the late 1990s. Products bearing the Fair Trade logo guaranteed that a, guarantee that a cooperative of poor farmers somewhere in the developing world have been paid a fair price for what they have produced, a price that permits the farmers and their families to live a dignified existence with at least the minimum of life's necessities and for their communities to begin to develop. So how does it work? One, for each commodity, such as tea, coffee, or bananas, a fair trade price is set, sufficient for a diligent small farmer to make a decent living. The farmers get the market price or the fair trade price, whichever is higher, this frees far farmers from the whims of the New York or London stock markets. Additionally, there is a small premium for community development, which the whole community must decide democratically how to use, perhaps for a school or local health center. 
The whole process is minutely inspected by an organization called FlowCert to ensure against cheating either by farmers or by companies labeling produce as fair trade when it isn't. Garstung in Lancashire declared itself the world's first fair trade town in April 2000, and the idea caught on. Regulated by in, in the UK by the Fair Trade Foundation, which sets the criteria for a fair trade community, as they are now called, there are now more than 600 such communities in the UK and 2,000 worldwide across at least 20 countries. The campaign to add Enfield to that number started in early 2005 and reached fruition in September 2008 when we were declared a fair trade borough. Enfield's success is mirrored by London's, the declaration of London as the largest, world's largest fair trade city came just days before ours. Once that target, target was achieved, the local company sadly faltered and eventually our fair trade status was lost. Now I'm pleased to say that we have a steering group in action again and are aiming eventually to recover our former fair trade status and in the meantime, to encourage you as the people of Enfield to keep buying fair trade products with their distinctive logo. You can find it sometimes in quite surprising places. Fair Trade Fortnight runs from the 27th of February until the 12th of March. There will be a launch event with the Enfield Mayor at Lancaster Road Co-op on Monday the 26th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., so please join us. There will be likely be other events at local places of worship and maybe schools which will be advertised closer to time. Next, an article about the plan to change part of Trace Green into a wetlands area. The Council's proposal to create wetlands at the northern end of Chase Green raises difficult issues. The Enfield Society generally views such schemes favourably and recognises some of the benefits this scheme would provide. At present, surface water from the area around the green is piped into the new river loop opposite the Crown and Horseshoes. Surface water from the streets tends to be polluted by oil and other chemicals and this contributes to the poor quality of the water in the New River Loop and threatens its biodiversity. Therefore, the plant life in a wetland scheme would absorb the pollutants naturally and more effectively. In addition, the diversion of additional surface water flows through the wetlands into the New River and would reduce the risk of flooding when the present drainage system is overloaded. Notwithstanding these benefits, the Society has concluded that Chase Green is not the right location for a wetland scheme. The green is registered as a village green under the Commons Registration Act 1965, and as such it is intended as a place for exercise and recreation. In our view, 
This means it should be a flexible, open space with a minimum of obstruction. The proposed scheme would form a barrier across the widest part of the green. In addition, there is a townscape and heritage aspect. The present open grassy space surrounded by trees on one side and low-rise building on the other two sides is what the society fought successfully to preserve in 1936. It remains a distinctive and valuable part of the Enfield landscape, preserving the atmosphere of a village green in the middle of an urban environment. Okay. Uh, Speaking of greens, I'm going to read White Web's campaigners' protest against council's terrible spurs deal. Around 100 people gathered outside the Enfield Civic Centre to vent their anger at proposed lease of White Webb's Park. And I'm sorry, I do apologize. I forgot to mention that this is from Enfield Dispatch. Residents, councillors, and campaigners staged a protest against Enfield Council's proposed lease of White Webb's Park to Tottenham Hotspur with a local MP also later saying she had no confidence in the Civic Center's approach. The Premier League Football Club is set to take over the running of half of the parkland in northern Enfield so that it can establish a new women's football academy next to its existing training complex in White Webb's Lane. But the decision has angered local people who say it should remain public open space. Prior to the decision in 2021 to award a 25-year lease to Tottenham Hotspurs Football Club, THFC, the eastern half of the park was occupied by a public golf course, but Enfield Council said it was losing too much money and closed it down. Campaigners, in turn, claimed the cost of running the golf course was exaggerated and the total $2 million pound value of the lease to Tottenham Hotspur, similar to the sum Hotspurs paid for reserve goalkeeper Fraser Forrest, represents a bad deal. At the protest last month, around 100 people braved wind and rain to wave placards outside Enfield Civic Centre. Tory councillors represented White Webs stated their opposition to the Tottenham Hotspurs lease, including David Skelton, who said, quote, As your councillor for White Webs, we will be fighting this horrendous deal every step of the way. All of the White Webs must remain open to the public, end quote. Andrew Thorpe, a conservative councillor, for Neighborhood Ridgeway Ward, added, quote, All of us here have been campaigning for year after year against this ridiculous and outrageous deal. We know this is a terrible deal for Enfield and a terrible deal for residents. It makes no sense on every level. We must keep fighting, end quote. The protest was organized by the Friends of White Webb's Park group, which in recent months has gained, joined forces with the Council for the Protection of Rural England, CPRE, to launch legal challenge against Enfield Council, citing laws protecting open space. Group chair Sean Wilkinson said, 
We love our parks, and we'd love our council to obey the law and to support us, not a multi-billion pound company, end quote. The latest controversy or controversy concerning white webs has centered around the council's publication, publicizing of its proposed lease to Spurs, with notices posted around the area stating that the local authority intends to grant a lease of the property for a term of 25 years to Tottenham Hotspur Limited. Campaigners say this breaks a promise to not commence the lease until planning permission has been granted, but the council claims it will keep its word and has categorically not entered into a lease with THFC. The council position has not changed. Enfield North MP Fairyell Clark has since added to the criticism of the council by writing a letter to her constituents saying she's lost confidence in the council's ability to involve local residents in its plans. Fairyell adds to her letter that she is disappointed. The council was proceeding with the lease notice before the full details of the THFC plan emerge. She wrote, I completely understand and share the anger and frustration of residents who feel like their voices have been ignored. The lack of clarity that residents have received on all stages of this project could have been averted by a more rigorous and meaningful engagement and consultation process. Local communities must be at the heart of decisions that affect them. The council's spokesperson said proposals were submitted by THFC in response to a call for experienced sport and leisure operators to suggest proposals for the site. The club's proposals ranked highest overall against the council's criteria. THFC's bid would significantly enhance public access to white webs compared to its previous use as a golf club. The proposal would see improvements to the wider park, carrying out repairs and renovations to paths, bridleways, and fences, as well as improving the existing cafe and toilet facilities to serve public uses of white webs. Their proposals would enable the council to invest £100,000 a year extra in grassroots sport for young people. At a full council meeting on the 25th of January, councillors debated a conservative opposition proposal to cancel the lease of Whitewebs Park to THFC and conduct a full and proper consultation on the park's future, but this was rejected by the ruling Labour group. And now a story of good news, a positive story, as reported in the Enfield Society News. The new housing development off Berry Street West on the former council depot is nearing completion. The scheme has 50 new homes, 65% of which are three and four bedrooms, and 50% let at London affordable rents. Known as Syersbury Way, the development is currently being marketed. 
The development has won an award from Inside Housing magazine and a second award was won by the in-house council team responsible for the development. The magazine noted that the project was an outstanding demonstration of how an ambitious local authority can develop beautiful family homes and use them to generate a haven for biodiversity. In their comments, the judges noted Enfield's commitment to design principles, environmental improvement and sustainability was impressive, but the commitment to creating a real community stood out. Well done, Enfield Council. And sorry, I'm going to go to the darker side from the Enfield Dispatch. There's an article about pedo cop. A metropolitan police officer who has worked in Enfield has admitted a string of child sexual offenses. Is that PC Hussein Chabab, age 22, pleaded guilty to four counts of sexual activity with a girl age 13 to 15, three counts of making indecent photographs of a child, and one count of engaging sexual communication with a child. The sexual activity with a child offense took place in 2019, before Chabab began at the Met. Chabab worked as a safer schools officer for three months in 2021, working at an Enfield secondary school, but the offense was unrelated to this role. Chabab was released on bail from sentencing at Wood Green Crown Court on the 17th of March. An accelerated police misconduct process has been initiated and a hearing will be held as quickly as possible, Detective Chief Superintendent Caroline Haynes, head for policing in Enfield, said. These offenses are made all the more sickening by the fact that some of the images, image offenses were committed while P.C. Jahab was in the role of a safety safer schools officer attached to a secondary school in Enfield between May 2021 and his arrest in August 2021. Once the initial allegations of P.C. Shahab were made, he was immediately removed from his role. We have worked closely with the school concerned and Enfield local authority to ensure that there are no further unreported safeguarding incidents or missed opportunities. Um, An article from the Enfield Dispatch telling you what's on at Chicken Shed this spring. Chicken Shed has plenty to offer this spring. As we look forward to spring, there is no better place to start than Chicken Shed. Our spring season is packed full of different events and activities and there really will be something for everyone to enjoy. We have some brand new writing to look forward to at our studio theatre this February with a bit of a twist. A funny thing happened on the way to the theatre will be an evening of short monologues, dialogues, and small cast pieces based on the theme of storytelling. Our annual spring show in March, Rush, focuses on imperialism, 
migration and gentrification and is told through the eyes of three women. This powerful new musical, combining music, movement, dance and multimedia, tells their stories as they are connected in ancestry, united in spirit, but divided by experiences of oppression echoing across the centuries. For our younger audiences, Tales from the Shed and Planet Play return for a new season, and our friends at Baby Broadway are back with a new show, Baby Gospel, as well as their much-loved family concert. Our music events include an evening with our Chicken Shed co-founder, Joe Collins, who, together with various musical friends, invites you to join her for a set of eclectic covers from rock to soul, funk, folk and more. Our popular comedy evening, Friday Night Funnies, serves up a host of top comedians helping warm you through laughter even on the coldest evenings. We also have an amazing selection of workshops for children and adults, whether dance, acting or performance. There's sure to be something that takes your fancy. And why not come along to our community choir and sing your way through the start of the year? Finally, please take a look at the Lost Records project, exploring how we connect our stories to music. With an opportunity to join any or all of nine exciting creative sessions this spring term, joining means you'll become a part of Lost Records cast, crew and creative team. The project will culminate in a performance in the summer and is created by Chicken Shed's Space Between Us community. We know that our uncertain financial climate at this time can make it difficult to plan outings. So we have frozen our ticket prices for another year and we really hope that Chicken Shed can be the place you come to for some all-important arts and culture. We have also launched a spring season offer of 15% off ticket prices when you book for more than one event. Simply book two different events online and your discount will be applied at the checkout. Oh, please note, the offer excludes workshops and events must be booked at the same time to qualify for the discount. The offer applies to bookings made up until the end of February. We really look forward to welcoming you to Chicken Shed this spring season and we hope to see you very soon. And I'm now going to read an article from the Palmer's Green Community webpage entitled Palmer's Green Landmark Pub Reopens. Four and a half years after closing to enable redevelopment of its car park into flats, Palmer's Green Landmark Pub, The Fox, is back in business and ready to resume its role as an asset of community value. Behind the wall bar, excuse me, behind the bar at the reopening was Austin Whelan, founder of Whelan's Pub Company, which has leased the pub, which has leased the Fox from a Heineken subsidiary, Star Pubs and Bars. 
The two companies have together invested £1.35 million in refurbishing the building, which before it closed in September 2018 had long since lost much of its former splendor. The usual decorative feature of the exterior are now much more evident, and the restored cupola with its appropriately themed weather vane, helps mark the fox out as one of our most important local features. On the inside, the new owners have opted for restoring the Edwardian-style quality, which emphasizes warmth and coziness, in sharp contrast to the stripped-back aesthetic which has predominated in pub refurbishments over the last couple of decades. While the new owners boast that the Fox is now a premium local offering quality food and drinks, press releases have stated that the menu will be based around pub classics such as fish and chips, sausage and mass, and Sunday roast. As regards drinks, Whelan pubs are all tied to Heineken, so it may well, well turn out to be the case that the craft and cask beers are all sourced from breweries that have not been swallowed up by the multinational brewing giant and whose products have consequently been affected by the emphasis that such companies place on cost-cutting and maximization of profit. Commenting on this latest opening, Austin Whelan says that despite the tough economic climate, our experiences that is that people still want a more premium offer and are prepared to pay for it. Palmer's Green has excellent demographics and is crying out for quality local. We are happy to be expanded with Star. They are fair and deliver the support we want. We always opt for tied leases as we see the benefits. Having lost the area to the left of the Green Lane's entrance to the new gym, the floor floor plan of the reopened Fox is radically different from how it was in 2018. Whelan's describe it as featuring a traditional bar, a spacious dining area, and large lounge that converts into a private function room, complete with its own bar accommodating up to 120 people. The function room will have a wall of nine TV screens that will be used to show major sporting events. And lastly, an item about the history of Enfield. I've been looking at some old archive um, material from the Enfield Advertiser and the Enfield Independent of Days Gone By, And this article was published in 2002. For sale, Enfield, £20. Enfield's roots stretch way back to the history books, to Roman and Anglo-Saxon times. During the Norman conquest of 1066, Enfield and Edmonton were both held by Ansegar, who was a nobleman, of Anglo-Danish extraction. He held property in seven countries and was the grandson of Tovey the Proud, 
who was a close friend of Canut, the founder of the collegiate church that became Waltham Cross. Ansiger was a prominent member of the court of both Edward the Confessor and Sheriff of London and Middlesex. He is known to have been wounded at the Battle of Hastings and it is believed that he eventually died in prison. Ansiger's lands were given to Geoffrey de Mandeville, who was still Enfield landowner at the time of the Doomsday Survey in 1086. The entry suggests that a church was in the area, possibly at the site of the current St Andrew's Church in Enfield Town. It also says that Enfield had arable land and meadow and sufficient woodland to sustain some 2,000 pigs and a same number in Edmonton. A mill is also recorded in the area and there is also mention of fish ponds. At the time, Enfield was valued at £50, but when acquired by de Mandeville, the land was worth £20, which suggests that Enfield suffered damage during the Norman Conquest. Edmonton suffered an identical price slump during that period. Opposite the aforementioned church was the manor house, which had a gatehouse, barn and dovecot in its grounds. After 1419, the manor was held by the Duchy of Lancaster and was leased out. In the late 16th century, it stood in seven acres of land with barns, stables and orchards and became known locally as the Palace. In fact, Queen Elizabeth I stayed there in August 1587 during Henry Middlemore's tenancy. By the late 17th century, the building was converted into a boys' boarding school run by Dr Robert Uvedale. About a hundred years later, part of it fell into disrepair and one wing of the building had to be demolished with the remainder still being used as a school, a post office and the first home of the Enfield Constitutional Club. The building was fully pulled down in 1928 to make way for Pearson's department store. One room was dismantled by the Legat brothers who reassembled it in a specially built extension to their Gentleman's Row home. Well, we have now reached the end of our programme for this week. Thank you for listening. And from the team of Alison and Jean and John on the controls, it's goodbye. Please remember to turn over the address label in your postal packet. Put the memory stick into the packet in a closed position and return it to us as soon as possible in readiness for the next edition. Don't forget, you can call Diane de Jersey regarding any help you may require in connection with Enfield Talking newspaper. And here is her number one more time. 07899854582 The Enfield Talking Newspaper will be back with you again in one week's time. Thank you for listening.